Welcome to the Thanks Therapy podcast. Before we start, if you're in crisis or need urgent support, please Google the Samaritans and the country in which you live. Help can be found online and via the phone. We also put local and national helpline numbers and links in the show notes and on social media. Don't suffer alone. Things can and will get better. Enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Hannah Lydon. And I am Dr. Emma Lydon and this is our therapy appreciation podcast, Thanks Therapy. Where we hope to demystify, destigmatize, and encourage the appreciation of good and useful therapy. And today we are expanding on a topic that we have raised in other episodes and one that I feel connects a lot of threads and that is meaning and purpose. Woohoo! Thanks Therapy! Thanks Therapy! Hannah, this is such a big topic that we are going to split it over two episodes. My God. I'm sure it's also something that we will revisit time and time again. Um, And I just wanted to start by saying that our level of process currently in how we do this (laughs) podcast is basically something that sparks our interest from one episode. We will expand expand into the next. And again, it was the sparklingly bright Hannah Lydon here who introduced the idea of the importance of meaning in our last podcast episode um, that was about exercise with the wonderful Zach Cahill. Thank you for saying that. That's extremely nice. My light would not shine so bright were it not for your encouragement. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, you know, I can't sit through a discussion of something like as normal as exercise without making it hashtag deep. And that <laughs> yeah. was the common theme I felt we were running into each time. Yeah. Throughout that discussion and also Zach's and excellent answers. Yeah. Um, was that the idea is exercise is more effective and easier easier to motivate oneself to actually do if we know why we're doing it, what our purpose is, that sort of thing. So today Ams, we're doing a deep dive. Yeah. Well I think everything's easier when you have meaning and purpose, isn't it really? And that's what we're going to discuss. So um, when we discussed this previously in another episode, we were talking about Viktor Frankl, um, who I think we're probably going to discuss next week in more depth. Yes, once we've um, both finished the book. Yes. But um, one thing I I was reminded of this quote whenever I was reading this the first half of his book, um, and it's the Nietzsche quote, a man or a woman with a why can bear any high. Mm. Um, and we talked about that a lot when we were discussing the horrendous conditions um, that Viktor Frankl and all of those held in concentration camps endured. Um, And when we talk about finding meaning or purpose or thinking about meaning and purpose, I think it's logical that we think a bit about existential philosophies. Um, So that would be like Nietzsche and Kierkegaard. They would have originated those philosophies and they um, believed that discontent could only be overcome through internal wisdom. Mm-hmm. Now, my therapist, I think, would say that, that they were too much in their cognitive space and they needed to get into their feelings a bit more. Yeah, well, where are you going to get that internal wisdom from? Is my question. Mm. Well, I I mean, I got to say, I read a lot of Nietzsche as part of my undergrad degree and I didn't really get it. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what was going on. I think maybe I was too young or... I don't know, but I read it anyway. But the, that quote is interesting about the why. And that that has made me think of one of the most significant meltdowns in my life, mm-hmm. my working life to date, Right, came from a time 
when I was unable to answer that question on a job I was okay. stuck in. Right. Like I was told I had done something incorrectly and I said like, oh, right, how, how should it be done? And then they showed me and I said, oh, why do you do it that way? Just out of curiosity. Mm-hmm. And the answer I got back was something like, that's just the way we do it. That's the way we've always done it. And my brain crumbled <laughs> like a sandcastle in yeah. the sea. And it was the straw that broke the camel's back. And yeah. I left that job because I was just like, actually, what is the point of any of this? Mm. If I don't know why I'm doing things the way they're done. I mean, that's a longer story of my mid-twenties and the dark night of the soul that I was experiencing at that time. But we should save that for another more self-indulgent episode. Okay. If you'd be interested in that. Yeah, sure always. Yes, would of love course. to hear about that. <laughs> but um, to bring it back to therapy, because this is, after all, a therapy podcast. We have mentioned existential therapy before. It's not something I really know anything about. Can you enlighten me, please? Yeah, so existential psychotherapy. Um, so it, existential therapy comes out of the existential philosophy world. So that those ideas spark the existential psychotherapy world. Um, people might associate it with the work of Irvin Yalom, who I think humanistic counsellors and psychologists will be all too familiar with. Um so Yalom was also hugely influ- influential in group therapy. He wrote one of the major group therapy Yes, textbooks. I've seen that. Yeah. yeah. Big, I think it might be like deal. called Working in Groups or something. Like it, it's <laughs> like the book. It's the book, yeah. yeah. Um, and he is considered by many to be um, the, the um, most significant living therapist living psychotherapist so he's still alive he's 90 and he is emeritus professor of psychiatry at Stanford that's a pretty big deal I know and he has written many beautiful books he's really prolific he's written about 30 books um, that might be of interest to listeners of this podcast including Love's Executioner which is different tales from psychotherapy Mm -hmm. and The Gift of Therapy which is a book for designed to be for like new and trainee therapists and counsellors coming up he might actually be my patron saint of therapy. Yep. I often think of Karen and Georgia, our patron saints of podcasting, and he's our patron saint of therapy. Yeah, I would agree. So, sorry, I'm totally digressing, but the central tenets of the theory of existential psychotherapy are that there are at least four primary existential givens and that struggling with these givens um, leads to existential anxiety. And they are freedom and associated responsibility, death isolation and meaninglessness. Okay. Okay, so it's easy to see how a preoccupation with death, for example, either one's own or others would lead to existential anxiety. Um, And in its extreme, this can lead to neuroticism or psychosis. Okay. I see you giggling. That makes a lot of sense. Well, because (laughs) I didn't read, I wasn't sort of, didn't know where that was going. Uh And I was like, God, freedom and associated responsibility, death, isolation, meaningless. Those are things I think about all the time. (laughs) And then you're next. (laughs) So, I mean, I wouldn't say that I'm totally free of existential anxiety, like particularly this week, this past week, uh-huh. there's been a lot of texting between me and you being me, me being like, just don't see what the point of all of this is. And you've been like, OK, it's fine. Just, you know, it'll be all right. Um, but anyway, so that's I'm enjoying the fact that we're talking about this in yeah. this episode. So, Emma, I have a surprise for you. Uh huh. You sent me this your outline for the script and wrote in it about the bit that you wrote about Irving Yellum. Yeah. You said, Hannah, don't buy these books. 
I, I'm going to buy this copies. Uh-huh. I have a surprise for you. I have read Love the Executioner oh. and it is one of my favorite books <gasps> ever. Yay. And oh, I have, so I think it's one of the reasons that I'm currently pursuing a career in psychology and I've brought my heavily annotated copy. Oh my God, that's so Fucking nice. yes. For the, you can't see it, but I did a dramatic reveal of my copy of the book yeah, for Anna there. It is a beautiful book, which I just bought and arrived today at my house. Mine's got like coffee rings oh, on it. Oh yeah, that's Although, a loved book. Is that part of the design? No, it's just very thematically it just appropriate with really the good. design, yeah. That's very meaningful. <laughs> yeah. Um. So I have re- read this a couple of different times. The, he has an introduction, a prologue, and then it's 10 different clients. Okay, great. And he writes about his process, but it's like, have you? how much have you read of it? None. Okay. Let's say none, okay? Okay. But the thing, this isn't really, I mean, it's not a spoiler because it's not like... No, no, don't worry about there's that. There's no plot. But the thing that I like about it and I think is so good about him is he is, so he's writing his accounts of treating these clients, mm-hmm. but it's as if he is a client as well. Because he does his not. His process is in the book as well. It's in the book. And the whole time he's going, hmm, I don't really know what to tell this person. Yeah. I don't know why I'm finding myself annoyed by this client. Like he's really, really candid yeah. about his feelings. Um, And like it's all about transference and counter-transference and it's fascinating. But he also has a way of making it seem very um, human. Yeah. Like he's not being like, I'm Dr. Yalom and oh, this yeah. is blah, blah, blah. Like he's being like, a chill dude. Anyway, um, one. so I was flicking through this book and being like, what things have I underlined? Okay. What was past me finding interesting? Yeah. And I found the perfect summation <gasps> quote for this episode. Oh my God, go. And it reads thusly. So this is from the introduction. There are, in these 10 tales of psychotherapy, few explicit discussions of meaning in life. The search for meaning, much like the search for pleasure, must be conducted obliquely. Meaning ensues for meaningful activity. The more deliberately we pursue it, the less likely we are to find it. The rational questions one can pose about meaning will always outlast the answers. In therapy, as in life, meaningfulness is a byproduct of engagement and commitment. And that is where therapists must direct their efforts. Not that engagement provides the rational answer to questions on meaning, but it causes these questions to matter. Brilliant. He's so fucking good. He's really That's great. just the introduction. Like, yeah. gets so much better. I would highly recommend this book. And um, what I liked what you said about how human he is, because that is a really humanistic view that in that relationship, by showing that compassion, by allowing somebody to experience these things, those discoveries will be made. Mm-hmm. You know, that's how it works. He's also... You know, you pointed out that it doesn't seem, you know, he's questioning himself. He's wondering why he feels this. You see his process. He's also extremely humble. Mm-hmm. Like he sees and when he talks to people and when people intre- or interview him, he can see that they're trying to idolize him. And he really totally <laughs> rejects that. He's just like, I, that is really unnecessary. I'm literally just a man. Yeah. And stop doing it. He's sort of got thing. that. I'm just a guy kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. That's such a good quote. So you had underlined this, had you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I could have written, there's so many that I could have, that were so apt for this episode. And what, when you had underlined it, what were you thinking about that, that thing of, you know, that you can't intellectualize uh, meaning or finding meaning or purpose? Is that sort of what he's trying to get at there? I guess so. Well, he's also talking about in the context of therapy and like his role as a therapist. Mm. So he's, I think that's why I was interested in it. I think I read this book and decided that I wanted to be a therapist. That's amazing. So yeah. 
like uh, in terms of being influential in my brain. He is so influential and and we're so grateful that he has done everything he's done. Um, What I was going to say about the fact that, you know, it sort of seems to be suggesting that you can't operationalise finding meaning really contradicts what I'm going to say later in this (laughs) podcast about trying to operationalise finding meaning. uh, Yeah, when I read that, I was like, oh, that is kind of annoying. It's kind (laughs) of like, do you know, what episode is an episode of New Girl? Funny enough, right. we're, we both love New Girl. Um, when there's a character who's going to be proposed to and she's not sure mm. and she asks her friend like who's engaged to be married to the person she loves. She's like, how did you know? Uh-huh. And she's like, well, I just, everything in me said yes. Uh-huh. And that's what people always say about things like love or like when you know, you know. Mm-hmm. But it's super unhelpful yeah. in terms of like practical advice. <laughs> so that's why this episode will probably be quite... Uh, It'll be varied. It's going to be varied. We know that this is a huge topic and I was conscious that I wanted to sort of pace myself with it. And part of that is because of my evaluation of previous episodes, which I feel that I have rushed a lot of the information that I've delivered. And so I have this habit of whenever I have a criticism of myself, I overcorrect. So, for example, there was one time where somebody mentioned that somebody thought I wasn't that um I wasn't like a your average mum you know like is this in real life this is real life somebody said a, a, a sort of a child said oh she's not really like a mum she's not really that mumsy and instead of actually taking that as a compliment which I real I kind I of realize now yeah. that it is um what I did was I overreacted and I immediately started baking like <laughs> numerous cakes and planning a party I baked like I baked what? a full chocolate cake a range of different buns but like I just I overcorrected I was like what but I hear I'm making all these cakes I'm very mumsy so that was that but so I realized that sometimes I'm rushing the information that we are delivering in this podcast and so I wanted to take my time a little bit more with this topic because it is so huge and important. So when I was thinking about finding meaning or purpose in life, I started to think about values, mm-hmm. right? Um, because I think that our core values give us a sense of meaning. And I actually took an online quiz, which has been developed by a social psychologist called Shalom Swartz. And this is free and anyone can take it. And I would encourage you to investigate it. It's a website called findyourvalues.com. It's a beautiful website. It's absolutely gorgeously designed. She's got another surprise. I can see it on her face. (laughs) I find it quite illuminating. So sometimes I think you have our values or beliefs or goals for life that we don't necessarily concretize or articulate even to ourselves. And what I find interesting about the process of this quiz was not only that I was able to really see myself express my values, which sort of reinforces them and Mm -hmm. therefore it gives you more of a sense of meaning. But I could then actually see how they aligned with my goals, with my life goals. Um, And I actually got the results. So it says it could take up to five days, but I got them in 24 hours and they were pretty accurate, um, except there was a couple of things because of the phrasing of some of the questions that I, I don't think the answers are perfect, but it's pretty good. That's interesting. Um, so you have a surprise because you have a little look on your face. I did the quiz. <laughs> <laughs> did you do it 
after I had sent you these notes? Or yeah, before? I did it last oh, right, night. Okay, yeah. cool. So I got the, and I was like, oh, well, it's, It'll yeah, take why a does while, it say yeah. it takes two weeks? I was like, is it going to be like a human person reading them? I thought it was just going to be like a computer quiz, you know? Yeah. Um, But I got, my results were just sort of kind of what I expected. Yeah, they were very much what I expected as well. Um, and what I wanted to share about it without spoiling it, and I was sort of thinking of not to spoil it for you, but not to spoil it for <laughs> anybody else as well, it, is that it distinguishes between extrinsic and intrinsic values. So extrinsic values are things like um, value and power and money, yeah. and status. Um, and intrinsic values are things like value and the well-being of others and nature and our own health. <laughs> Can you guess which group of values leads to the most well-being, Hanzo? Well, I know now. But I guessed before it's yeah. intrinsic, isn't it? It is, absolutely, because um, intrinsic van- values tend to be held independent of the judgment of others. So they're more true to ourselves um, and uh, they lead to the satisfaction of the core psychological needs, which is this is fundamental stuff that we're talking about here. Yeah. So the core's fundamental needs of autonomy, competence and relatedness. Which, Do you know what's so ironic? What? My my top uh, like value mm-hmm. was privacy. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> For someone who's obsessed with therapy and disclosing and has a podcast, my top one was about privacy, mm. and the second one was about curiosity. So I think that there's something about the way in which you answer a question, which is can be very emotionally driven. So, for example, the, there was questions asked about how much I cared about the security of the state in which I lived, which yeah. is a weirdly patriotic question, which doesn't really attach with my notion of living in a country at all. I was confused about that as well. Also, we are Northern Irish and yeah. it's kind of complicated. It's really to be complicated. <laughs> yeah, it's very complicated to be Northern Irish. Your your cultural identity and your national identity are complicated when mm. you're from here. So we're... It's just not as easy as that. And it meant that. So my values were very much about the well-being of others. But then my I had low score on on like protecting people in society or something like that, which is absolutely wrong for me. That's literally untrue. Yeah. Sort of your job. It is your actual job that you get paid for. Yeah. It is. That's very true. But so, it, it is interesting. There was a very interesting quiz. Even doing it was interesting, like regardless of the results. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, I did I think it was interesting. No, no, that's okay. Um, I think one of the most useful parts of it was sort of the advice that it gave you at the end as it broke down, you know, your values, um, how you could improve your life, how you could use inf- this information sort of thing. Um it one of the very first things that it recommended was about using mindfulness, Hannah. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, we're going to have to talk about mindfulness again, I, I think. Know. We're going to have to be mindfulness all is forgiven <laughs> episode, I think. Anyway. That'll be my apology tour. <laughs> yeah. Overall, the message of the advice is that if you can align your values with your pursuits and goals in life, then you will find more meaning and purpose. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Who could argue? I know, absolutely. And I mean, that would make sense as to why I had a mental breakdown in that job that I mentioned before. Like when I say mental breakdown, I'm not being flippant. Like I left a job, didn't work for like, how long was that? Like six months or something? All I did was go to therapy yeah. and survive. And yeah. it, was, it was bleak. It was the wrong job at the wrong time, for sure. Or was it the right job at the right time? Because it mm. led me to 
like you know a sort of spiritual rock bottom. That's a good that way to think about it. Yeah, my life has been in a largely upward trajectory since. So Amazing. thank you for that awful job. Okay. Um, <laughs> I am going to wildly change topic. Okay. Here. And talk about something that I think is relevant, although on the surface it might seem like a departure from our topic. Okay. Emma, how much do you know about Fordism and the Marxist theory of worker alienation? Uh, Almost nothing. I mean, I know about Marxism. Yes. And I did teach undergraduate sociology, which, Mm. so you need to know a little bit about Marxism. But I don't know about this particular theory and I'm very interested to find out. Here we go. So Fordism, Fordism is the term used to describe the change in manufacturing, particularly in the automobile industry in the late 19th century into the early 20th century. Ah. And it takes his name from the American industrialist Henry Ford, who you probably know who that is. Yes. So he proposed that he was going to introduce this new way of making cars that would make them extremely affordable to the average salaried person, moving car manufacturing away from the way it had been up until this point, which was that it was highly skilled work done by a select few people who had the skills and resources. So in other words, it took ages. It was like a high craft. Mm. Cars were super expensive. Nobody really had a car. So Henry Ford comes along, sees this, and he's like, hang on. If I just make it easier to make cars, to produce them in greater quantities i can make a shit ton of money because everyone will buy a car if they're made affordable like yeah it's super handy to have a car so the way he did this was basically make it so that many workers could be given the machines and molds to make parts of a car gradually it would be made in many parts and assembled further on down a production line as opposed to this smaller team style starting from nothing and seeing mm-hmm. the whole construction through because that takes ages and then it's more like a a specialized product and it's less accessible. Yeah. So, like, this sounds great because it creates loads of jobs. It massively ups the production and availability of cars mm-hmm. and changes other industries because of that. He makes loads of money. Everybody has a car. Yeah. Sounds so good, right? Yeah. Enter Marxism. Yeah. To tell you that that's wrong because it's spiritually bad for the workers. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Marx argues that the workers operating these machines to make a tiny part of a car mm-hmm. are essentially alienated by this process. They never get to right. see the completion of the product. Mm. They're like blinkered to their one area of the larger production line. They become cogs in a machine. Mm. God, I love talking about cogs. Yeah, um, They don't see the fruits of their labor or the importance of their role. Um, and they don't see any of the profit being gained at the end of the production that doesn't come doesn't trickle down to them so they become sort of emotionally intellectually disconnected from their work i think the the kind of term for that kind of feeling in your work is de-skilled mm, that's what we would say now for sure de-skilled yeah. which i think is interesting so anyway uh marxist reading of this argues that this is bad news for the old finding meaning aspect yeah. of uh, you know work in everyday life competency yeah. competency mm-hmm. a feeling of purpose like you're just yeah. kind of going you're not going I make cars and they're beautiful and mm-hmm. I, I take pride in the product you're just going yeah I pour the steel into this mold mm-hmm. and then it rolls down a belt and I never see it again then another one comes along I pour the steel so I mean you could be you could be argued that you can find meaning in that if you're a special kind of a person where if you have a different approach to it but overall the Marxist argument is that that causes a mass alienation in the workers yeah Um, so yeah it essentially disconnects the worker from their craft their sense of like creativity and purpose in their work I'm aware that it's all got very undergrad English lit in here 
but I'm just going to close off this rant with a quote from Marx. A spider conducts operations that resemble those of a weaver, and a bee puts to shame many an architect in the construction of her cells. But what distinguishes the worst architect from the best of bees is this, that the architect raises his structure in imagination before he erects it in reality. At the end of every labour process, we get a result that already existed in the imagination of the labourer at its commencement. He not only affects a change of form in the material on which he works, but he also realises a purpose of his own that gives the law to his modus operandi and to which he must subordinate as well. And this subordination is no mere momentary act. I don't know what you make of all Adams, but this came to mind for me when we were making this week's episode because... I think it's a really universal experience to be to want to be able to like enjoy everyday life. Um and for a majority of adults in our society, that means having a job that keeps you like financially comfortable and you don't have to hate every moment of doing. Absolutely. And yeah. that can be <laughs> surprisingly difficult to find. Yeah. Um the, those two things in in harmony is quite difficult. My and in my experience of modern life, it's about striking a balance there. Maybe not loving your job. It's not your ultimate source of fulfillment. You maybe strive for something better um, and find you find meaning elsewhere in your relationships, hobbies, your inner life and your overall contribution to the world. But I just thought that was an interesting thing to bring up. It absolutely is. And I do think that it's important to think about um, work for a minute. Just pause and think about work. Um, so what you're saying there makes me think about my dad, your mm-hmm. granddad, um, changed his job when he was 35 in 1960 something. Yeah. So he was an engineer in Shorts, which is the um, shipbuilding factory in um, Belfast where the Titanic was made yep. and things like that. But he worked in Shorts making <clears throat> parts of aeroplanes, funnily enough. Um, and so whenever you were talking about the making of parts of things, I think that I absolutely understand what the the point of that Marxist argument and I agree with it to a certain extent. And I think there are other problems with those kinds of ways in which production went. But I think that people can find meaning in their job no matter what oh for and sure. I think that yeah, some yeah. people are like well actually I make um, a very small part of a car but it's a really important part and it's quite a highly skilled operation and yeah. you know whatever but um, what happened with dad was so it's, at first he started making plane seats and um, then after a short time I'm, I'm not sure if he actually moved on to making a, a part of a weapon Mm-hmm. Or if it was the same um, department that he was in was essentially making some kind of part of a weapon. It, he literally wasn't working in like weapons manufacturing, but yep. Yep. it was something to do with a weapon that was supposed to go into a tank and bounce around inside the tank and kill all the people in the tank. Oh my God. And when he realised this, he had a kind of an epiphany <gasps> where oh he realised that so he was a pacifist for start. Yeah, big he time. Was, he was a Christian and this job did not align with his core values, which was to not kill anybody. Yeah. You know, he did not want to be contribute to anybody's death. I, I would have to check him for the details. I don't know if he was actually 
if it was just like another department, he realized, oh, they're making weapons because as far mm. as I know, he was mostly involved in like the insides of planes or whatever. So I don't yeah. know how that that came about. But obviously there was, he had other ideas of what he wanted to do in his life anyway, because he had been running a youth club within the church while work as, working as an engineer. And he decided that he wanted to go and retrain as um, a professional youth worker, mm-hmm. which he did do with a young family and he had to go away to England and do it. Yeah. So it was a big risk and a big it's change. not really the done thing at the time either. Like it was not the done thing. In the 60s in Belfast, you didn't generally just be like, I think we're going to become this totally different thing mm-hmm. and leave my stable well job, job. Yeah. 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 To do something kind of hippie-ish, you know. Yeah. <laughs> There's an overall hippie vibe. <laughs> yeah, well, he's a massive hippie. He's so a it big hippie. That. Yeah. Um, but I do think that that ties into things that I wanted to say about um, core values. Yeah. Um, and I, they, this is how you could think about how existential psychotherapy might work in practice. Um. So they talk about givens, mm-hmm. these givens, which is a weird term term for me. Yeah, it's like fundamentals. Yeah. And sorta. so what I think of when I think of that, the language that I would have used myself would have been um, core beliefs. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I want, I'm going to give you three real world examples of how this might work in practice, okay? Yes. No less than three, Hannah. Okay. <laughs> Maybe four. I'll see how I'm feeling. Okay. okay. So here's an example. Um, someone who has a core belief that heterosexual Christian marriage is the only way one can have a relationship. Yeah. And yet has clear and unequivocal desires for a same-sex relationship. Um, a, a man who has a strong belief that um, the man or the husband should provide for his family by maintaining a steady job. However, he's very unhappy in his job, mm-hmm. which is relevant to what we've been talking about. And has an idea for a business and leaves his secure job and takes a risk, you know, by going into a business. Mm-hmm. Um, in this case, he almost immediately fell into quite a deep depression. And this was because he was acting against a core belief and it threw him into a crisis. So I have seen this time and time again, which is why I have this number of Interesting. real world examples. So it's kind of like, is that... Can you say that they're experiencing cognitive dissonance? Is that what that term means? So, yeah, cognitive dissonance is holding two conflicting beliefs. Right. So it's the name for the kind of discomfort that comes from holding two conflicting beliefs. So, I mean, but like, so believing in your brain Mm. that heterosexual Christian marriage is the only way you're allowed to have a relationship, but also having the belief that you might fancy people of the same sex. Mm. The problem is is that cognitive dissonance is quite a mile. Like it's just, um, you know, this having those two fundamental differing beliefs is a psychic conflict. Do you know what I mean? Psychic conflict is fucking much cooler (laughs) term. (laughs) Psychic conflict is going to be the name of my first prog rock album. (laughs) And it's going to blow your socks off. She's always taken all the good album names. Keep up. You um, can claim some. You can okay. have cognitive dissonance. It's not as fun. I know, yeah. Um, Dad's album name that he always wanted to have was Oculum Silence. Do you remember? 
No. I've never heard of Oculum Silence. Oculum Silence is the name. Oh my His God. name for the band that was formed from just our family members that came up with walking that time. That's Oculum, Oculum Silence? Silence is the was band that the band name, name not the, the album band name? the name actually rather than the album name. But anyway, yeah. Oh my God, that's incredible. Um, Runs so, genetic then, the need to name albums that haven't been made. <laughs> Um, uh, here's another example, okay, in terms of the given of freedom and associated responsibility, okay, um, some people, sometimes people can experience great distress when they feel they're not meeting the responsibilities, particularly if they have a core belief that that responsibility is important. Um, so, for example, someone believing that family should stay together, but then wanting to leave their husband or wife because the relationship isn't a happy one. Mm -hmm. So in order to leave that relationship, they have to act against their core belief and that can lead to significant mental dysfunction. Um, so I think you can see the point I'm making here. But these core beliefs, we internalise these when we're younger, often from our family's values. That's, you know, sometimes they're religious values. Sometimes they're just things that people want to instill in their children. Mm -hmm. um, and there's other ways that you can come upon them. But the reason I'm bringing this up is that I think sometimes when you think about values or you think about core beliefs, they seem unshiftable. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So if you think about your values, oh, what are my values? I need to find out what my values are so that I can act accordingly. But what if it's the core beliefs that need to shift? You know, so that person who wanted to start a business, you know, my dad wanted to leave his job. He might well have believed that a, a man should provide for his family no matter what. But if he had have continued to pursue that route, mm -hmm. he, that would have laid, led to unhappiness. Yeah. Because um, he needed to make that change. The core belief was the thing that needed to shift. Mm, interesting. Do you see what I mean? Yes, I do. Yeah. And then on the other side of that is people who would suffer from existential anxiety and they can often be really bad at making decisions, mm -hmm. you know, fearing that whatever decision they make will be the wrong one. So they'll labour over decisions, procrastinate, agonise. But people who maintain a healthy balance, I think, recognise that decisions are important and can positively impact their lives, even if they don't know what the overall outcome will be there's an unknown quantity there's a risk yeah. but it's, it's still important to make those decisions yeah so th that's fascinating to me because so maybe this is an example of cognitive dissonance I consider myself to have a fairly you know sizable dose of existential anxiety but then I don't really feel like I'm a person who struggles to make decisions mm. in that way and I think the reason that I'm able to do that is because I have like a unofficial mantra, mm. which I kind of, whenever I'm having trouble with stuff, like my behavior and my choices, I kind of go, none of it really matters. Take solace in your insignificance. Mm. Like that's the thing that makes, that eases my anxiety about stuff. Mm. Like, you know, in the grand scheme of things, your life is but a blip. It sounds yeah. a bit bleak, but I, I do find comfort in that. And I think that's why I, I've never really struggled with decisions. Yeah, no, I think that um, the operative word there is can. And I think it's probably if you have a particular type of anxiety around um, responsibility mm -hmm. that you might struggle with making decisions, but not necessarily, I think, is the key to that as well. Um, whenever you were saying that you sort of say, um, 
tell me again what you're saying about your insignificance. Take you solace in your insignificance. Take solace in your insignificance. So it chills me out a lot. <laughs> and I might say, shit or get off the pot. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. because I, I, what I feel is when you're struggling to make a decision, you know, like just make a decision and see what happens. There's not everything is, is, irreversible and most Literally, things can be solved. Yeah, I don't know. Trust your gut. Um, mm. Unless you're making big life or death decisions every day, which seems unlikely unless you're like a paramedic, a judge, a surgeon. I think it's even probably, they have decision making tools that allow them to make a decision rather yeah, than for sure it's part of the training. fear. And as you say, things are rarely irreversible. Mm. I read, and this made me think of it, this thing that I read one time, can't remember where, can't remember what it was about. Sources, as usual, are scant. <laughs> but it was about the construction of the word decide because the suffix side, C-I-D-E, mm. comes from Latin, which means to kill. Yeah. Like, for example, homicide, matricide, suicide. So if you look at decide in that way, it means to kill one option, which is quite a stressful way to approach decision making. And maybe we should, you know change that word yeah could we all agree as a society to stop saying you need to make a decision because that sounds very final Mm. scary intimidating and it also implies that one option once not chosen is no longer available to you and I don't think that life really works that way no it doesn't um but that is um how we think about the philosophy of decision making often um, I was always fascinated by this question, which was a question for, um, it might have been the School of Psychology or maybe it was the School of Philosophy in Oxford or Cambridge. And they had this question that they asked people who came to apply to be in Oxford or Cambridge. Oh, shit. So the question was, um, and I'm going to misquote it totally, but one time I wrote a big <laughs> treatise on it. Um, but the question was, so you approach a table and there is a peach and a piece of chocolate cake um, and the peach looks beautiful and ripe and the chocolate cake looks really de- delicious and tasty. Um, and you are told that you can choose one of the things and um, eat it. You can only choose one. Yeah. Right. And you take the piece of chocolate cake and eat it and consume it and enjoy it. That's the whole question. Right. Is that a question? Well, it's not a question, but what they're asking you to do is consider choice. And they're asking you to consider that decision of killing off one of the options. Right. Um, what? How are you weighing up the choice? What are the benefits of the chocolate cake? Versus the benefits of the peach, you know, they're asking you to weigh up um, and maybe instant gratification with, um, you know, uh, nourishment and health. Wow. Okay. What would you choose? Uh, that's a good question. I think the answer is super obvious. What, the cake? The peach. I, if I was given that question, maybe not if I was in that real life situation, which... Like it's not really real, but yeah. If you if you think about what they're expecting, you'd answer mm. that question and display in your answer. They yeah. want something sexy, and the peach is sexier because oh. peaches are sexy. That's true. And peaches also, are sexier than chocolate they're cake. more 
literarily connected because mm-hmm. it's fruit. There's a biblical connection. Yeah. What if it wasn't an apple? What if it was a peach? Mm. Also, uh, what's the poem? The poem that I'm thinking of is The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock by T.S. Eliot. Oh, One of the most famous amazing. and beautiful poems probably poem. of all time ever. And there's a line in it that says, Do I Do dare, dare to eat a peach? peach? So imagine if you fucking brought this up in this Oxbridge interview yeah, and explained why. And I think in the poem he is scared or intimidated by the thought of eating a peach because he has problems with femininity and women. Yeah. This question is entirely about sex, I'm afraid. No, I agree with you. (laughs) And I think that why I was so fascinated with it was because it just seemed like a non-question. And I was like, what are they wanting you to answer? What is going to separate somebody who should be in Oxbridge and somebody who shouldn't from this answer? And the treatise that I wrote was all about like proximal decision making. And, you know, what's proximal mean? So we make decisions based on, you know, immediate needs and projected needs. Um, and when we were talking about motivation last week mm-hmm. with with Zach and I asked him that question about, you know, I had read a blog that he had done, which he was saying, oh, you yeah, know, about the-, the, the current you, you'll say, well, look, I can have a biscuit now because tomorrow I'm going to be really good. So future you is always going to be better. And, you know, we can make our decisions based on something that is very future focused. So I'm going to eat a peach now because it's going to nourish my body and it's going to give me, um, you know, nutrients and it's going to do a lot more for me than the chocolate cake is, you know. Sure. Um, but, see, I knew this was going to be a biggie, a deep episode this episode. <laughs> Hannah, I'm glad you because, brought this peach thing because I'm um, So I think it was that poem that reminded me of the peach question because you had quoted that poem or something on Instagram. Oh my God. It was in your I recently Googled that because I was like, something reminded me of it. Or like, I was thinking about the overall cultural trend at the moment to use the peach emoji to imply a butt. Yeah. Like a nice big bum. Mm. And I was thinking about that and I was like, oh, what is it that's so fascinating about peach? I mean, essentially, I feel like we have... A lot of what we've talked about today has entered into the philosophical world. Um, And, you know, the history of philosophy is all about the search for meaning. That's what they were all about. That's the whole deal. That's the whole deal with those dudes. So, for example, you had Epicurus, who believed the purpose of life was to seek pleasure. Um, What we probably call hedonism, although that has a really bad name. Yeah. um, But Epicurus's actual view of this was spending time with good friends, thinking big oh. and having great dis- discussions and not fearing death. Um, it's literally so, all I do all day. <laughs> yeah, that's how he understood the pursuit of pleasure. So it wasn't all eating and drinking and fornicating, although I would take a bit of both. I mean, that all sounds brilliant. <clears throat> um, and in social psychology, I think we would search for meaning in the connections between the self and the environment. And that's where my intellectual and epistemological beliefs merge really well, because I do think that the meaning of life is found in others and our connection and attachments with them. Funnily enough, that's what my value profile showed really? on the Find Your Values website. Oh, yeah, it was all about um, helping others, connecting to others, all that kind of stuff. I was Man, none of that those. shit was on mine. <laughs> 
really surprised. I'm a, I must be selfish. I think I'm just really self-interested as a person. But that the the personality profile that I got made it sound fine. Oh, it was yeah, like no, you are a worldly voyager on a quest for knowledge. You need to be alone. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was very positive. I wouldn't, you know, people will enjoy doing it, I think. Um, so in terms of, you know, connections and attachment, I suppose the shorthand for that is love. And I don't really mean that in a romantic way, although that's not to be discounted. I sort of mean unconditional positive regard to bring yeah, it man. back to Rogers. Rogers. Um, I mean, like taking actions to help others. I mean, care. I mean, feeling that you can make a difference. I mean, good friends and dogs and cats and family. Yeah. And all of that is driven by love in its purest form, not the Valentine's Day love. Yeah. Um, and this is coming from a non-religious perspective as well. You know, I'm not a religious person at all. And I know that some people find this type of meaning and purpose and love from a spiritual place. But I I don't. It's from a very much from a secular place for me. Yeah, me too. But I don't know. Like, I think I'm not religious, but I would say that I'm probably spiritual. Yeah, no, I do think I do I'm like, spiritual as well. I like all that kind of stuff. I'm spiritual with my connection to nature, which was another one of my top values. Mm. Oh, yeah. Speaking of connection, helping others, finding meaning. Mm. Do you want to get into a question from a listener? Oh, my God. Here we go. This is so exciting because I don't know about this one. So I've seen the question. It was sent to me personally. Emma hasn't seen it. So her her uh, reaction is going to be organic. This is brilliant. Um, this, I'm going to take a back step on this question because it's quite pertinent to me okay. and my general life situations. Okay. Um, so here's our problem for mm. this week. Hi, this person just gets right into it. There's none of your, hi, I love the podcast. No. So thanks very much. Okay. Um, <laughs> they, they write, I have a complicated relationship with my parents as they are both alcoholics and toxic in all the ways that come with that disease. We used to not have any sort of relationship at all but reconnected after a family tragedy a few years ago. They try their best and I feel a lot of empathy for them, but in all honesty, they are just not great parents. Mm. I'm careful to set boundaries with the relationship. For example, I don't go to their house in the evening, so I don't see them drinking. But even after a visit, I generally feel quite crap. I will usually feel quite down, upset, angry, guilty, worried, etc., etc. And will have the fight to have to fight the urge to go into self-destruct mode. The visits are usually totally fine and innocuous. We will just chat and drink tea and whatever. But I still have this horrible cocktail of emotions for several days after. Do you have any advice on how to make these visits and the math aftermath easier? And then they've included a too long didn't read. Parents crap, make me feel crap. What do? <laughs> oh, that's a very good. It's <laughs> a really well read. written question. And thank you very much for writing in about that because that's quite painful, I imagine. It is very painful and I think they've written it in quite a benign way, but it's it's such a painful thing. Mm. So the first thing I want to say, because I feel like this is quite a heavy and serious topic. And so I want to give um, an important answer mm -hmm. and the most important answer that I can give you in terms of your feelings is to remember it's not your fault. Yeah, it is not your fault. It is not your fault that they are like this. This is their own mistakes. Um, this is their own choices. It's nothing to do with you. And you can't do anything about it. Yeah. It's not your problem to solve. 
Um, it's not the responsibility of the child to fix the parent. It never is and it never should be. Um, I think you're doing an amazing job and um, that you have made a decision which is important for you and is um, is what you want to do right now, which is to maintain a relationship um, while keeping your distance. Yeah. And that is a hard line to tread, to maintain a relationship I while keeping your distance. That's hard in any scenario, in course, any relationship, yeah, never mind is. when there is addiction in, mm-hmm. in the mix because addiction Blurs complicates lines. all of those factors, yeah. especially between parents and children. Mm. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's so complicated. I wanted to say those things to address this person and their significant experience before I said the thing that we always say, which is, are you going to therapy? Because, (laughs) you know, when you're talking about having a hangover of horrible feelings for days afterwards, that's what therapy is really good for doing, dealing with is, is thinking I'm going to be able to talk about this in therapy. I'm going to have somebody who's going to be understanding and is going to, um, help me process these unpleasant feelings. Yeah. And so, you know, I didn't want to say that right off the bat. I just wanted to respond in a human way to this person who has a a difficult situation in front of them. Well, they don't specify in the question. That was the whole question. Um, But I would, I mean, I'm going to make an assumption here. I think this person has quite a great deal of self-awareness. Yeah, so that indicates they probably are in therapy. Or or have some interest in it or is they're in the active process of mm. trying to sort this out in their lives. Um, I mean, speaking from experience, that the even the fact that they're not seeing their parents drinking, mm-hmm. the the whole setting is gonna be enough to to bring up those feelings of like they write upset, angry, guilty, worried, etc. Like that's quite a lot of stuff. Yeah. That is so heavy. Yeah, and guilty as well. Yeah. I mean, well, that's why I think probably guilty really struck a chord for me because you know I think it's you're you're all of those feelings are are fine. You're you're right to feel angry. You're right to feel upset. You're right to feel worried. Mm-hmm. All of those things. I mean, you're not wrong to feel anything, but you know, it's just that feeling guilty. It's just not your fault. That's one of the most toxic things. Is is people feeling guilt for something that somebody else is doing somebody else's actions and choices I mean I guess that's why they call alcoholism the family disease yeah because they're they're not even in great proximity to the parents and they're still feeling this even after I get the impression that it's sparse visits yeah and the boundaries are set and it's still having this effect something that I thought when I was kind of reading this initially was because um, they say I have I will have to fight the urge to go into self-destruct mode. The very fact that you recognize that you have that impulse mm. is huge. And yeah. like you have obviously done quite a lot. Yeah, already they've to already done that. a lot of work. Yeah, yeah, like that is and it's very impressive because I mean, I, t- I would tend to have quite a sort of nuanced view of alcoholism and addiction problems and have like a great deal of empathy mm-hmm. because it, I think it is a disease mm. and it's it's 
it's not necessarily a, a choice that their parents are making. No. But the fact that this writer in her is able to make that choice for themselves to be like, I am not going to go into self-destruct mode. I'm acknowledging that I want to, which in and of itself is quite a hard thing to do because it doesn't make you feel great to realize that you <laughs> want to go into self-destruct. Um, but they are choosing not to. And instead they've chosen to write into us. Yeah. Which is massive. I mean, I just want to say to this person that we think you're brilliant. I know. I, I do think they're brilliant. And also, I don't think that there's anything that any advice that we could give that is any better than um, what you're already doing. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that you're doing an amazing job and I, 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 I just can't give you any more um, admiration and, yeah. and I, I can't express it. I have so much admiration for you. To directly answer the question, any advice on how to make these visits and that aftermath easier, fucking take it easy on yourself. Yeah. Like you're Be doing really kind to you're yourself. doing quite a difficult thing and it sounds like you're handling it mm-hmm. and paying attention to your own feelings and that is huge. Yeah. Beyond that, it's really hard for it to not cause you any distress at mm-hmm. all. Um, and so there's no easy way around that really but I think it sounds like because you're sensitive and you're you're self-aware that you are taking care of yourself and that's really what what I would want you to do is take care of yourself just as you were talking there Hannah and when you were saying you have a great deal of empathy and you you know you it's not a choice that these people made to be alcoholics Um, on Twitter recently on a therapist's um, network that Thanks Therapy is a part of. Mm-hmm. They asked for what's your bit of advice or what's one of your top bits of advice or, you know, phrases that you would go to with people. Okay. And I said one which I give, which is more for therapists than for clients. Um, and it's there but for fortune go you or I. Some other people might say there but for the grace of God go I. Mm-hmm. But I prefer there but for fortune go you or I and the reason that I like it is to remind you that any of us could be in any position that oh, other people find themselves 100%. in 100% we could yeah. be homeless we could be addicted to heroin we could you know if our lives had taken a different turn we could be any of those people yeah there's so many variable factors that lead to people finding themselves with addictions and I think any any approach that's like, you know, just don't don't take drugs for the first time, don't try alcohol for the first time is, mm. is bullshit. Well, that's an abstinence it's philosophy, an abstinence isn't it, which doesn't philosophy. work. <laughs> and we know that those are, they don't work. Abstinence doesn't work, baby. It doesn't work for People anything. are going to do things. People are going to do what they're going to do. Yeah. Like, you know, uh, yeah, who, among, who amongst us? Exactly. There say but say for that fortune. phrase again. There but for fortune go you or I. Yeah. Absolutely. So well done, writer inner. We think you're great. We think you're great. Thank you so much for writing in. I was a bit blown away by that right writer inner one. I actually to be have honest. a book recommendation for that writer inner. Right. Because I have a parent who um has alcohol problems as well. And I read Gabor Mata's book In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. Oh, yeah. And he is he is like just so compassionate Mm. like he's almost weaponized compassion (laughs) in a way that I find fucking so impressive and that book actually brought me a lot of kind of made me come to peace with a lot of things about um sort of being close to 
an addictive person. Mm. So if Ryder Inner, you want to check that out, it could be good. It's kind of a toughie, but it might, might help. Okay. Thank you for writing in. Um, that was that was intense. We have gone on a journey today, Hanzo. <laughs> Man. I, I don't know what people are going to think of this because, <laughs> I, you know, and do, do remember the example that I gave of how I overcorrect? Yeah. So I was worried about the depth in previous episodes and that mm. I was rushing things. And I feel that this overcorrection has occurred and we've gone deep man. Well, I think one. it's good. I like it. Well, we would love to have some feedback from people. I know it's hard to review on all platforms, but if you, you can send us a message on Instagram or Twitter. Yeah. Um, but if you have a platform such as Apple Podcasts where you can leave a review, please do leave us a review and a five star rating. Yes, please. We would love that. Um, just we actually send us messages about how good we are, please. <laughs> yes, to give us lots of affirmations. It's kind please. of been a hard time. It's getting dark. Mercury's in retrograde. Mercury is in so much retrograde, man. And like, I'm a bit tired sometimes. I'm very tired almost all the time. Oh, yes. No, I did just want to brag a little bit that uh, after seven episodes, we did manage to get on the Apple podcast chart for mental health. Fuck yeah. That was Um, cool. Thank you very much. I mean, we peaked out at 138, but I am still delighted that we got on I'm taking 138. I'm just happy that anyone is interested and yeah. listens to this and doesn't just go, no, boring, <laughs> bye. Like, that's so nice. Yeah, we hope we find our people and that, that people are still enjoying it. And, um, you know, definitely we'd love to hear what you think. Yeah. Let us know what you thought about an interview episode because that was a bit of a departure. And let us know what you think about us doing like a seven part meaning and purpose episode <laughs> as this is going to become because we've gone over our time I think a little bit anyway um, so I think we should say goodbye Hannah yeah thanks Emma thanks Hannah thanks, thanks therapy. therapy there are in these te- this is in the introduction Marty it's a really good point to bring up I just don't want to waffle it microphone smells like church kind of hold on <laughs> I actually might have it written down this here will be the third because... google pause in the editing process <laughs> of this podcast I think we podcast. should do this more often